Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. There are a large number of seats where these um, community independents are going to be active, so I wouldn't assume that if they do get into power that their votes would put a Labor government in either. No. Like, I think there's a real assumption as we watch all this of um, the intervention on climate by mm. basically progressive philanthropists that the votes automatically see a progressive government. It yeah. may well be that they form a base that forced the Libs and the Coalition to come up with something approaching a policy for the 21st century on climate. Hello, lovely people. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host and political editor of Guardian Australia. And you may just in the distance, it's not really clear to me whether in the pod cave anyone can hear me scream or whether you can hear the constant division bells that are actually ringing just outside us. But we are actually recording the show on the final parliamentary sitting week of the year. So uh, I could not be more delighted to be joined in the pod cave by my dear friend and poll collaborator, Peter Lewis, Hi, how are you, Catherine? Uh, Very good to see you, dear. Uh, And Peter, for folks who don't know him, is the Director of Essential Media and uh, uh, also uh, spearheads the Guardian Essential Poll, uh, which we publish each fortnight. And I just thought it was the perfect week, really, for he and I to get together, maybe have a trauma session, who knows, but to think about the year Uh, through the lens of polling, because obviously uh, we are coming up for an election year next year. It's just a matter of whether or not the Prime Minister brings the Parliament back or not. Uh, You know, my feeling at the moment is we've got a March election or a a May one, uh, and we will discover in due course after Christmas. But anyway, we just thought we would unpack the story of the year through the lens of the data. So what we're going to do is we're going to, this is Pete and me, so look, anything could happen, but I'm attempting to put a structure around it by just actually telling the story of the year in order. So we're going to roll back now to the start of this year. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I have massive trouble with the space-time continuum and have done throughout the pandemic. In fact, when I was prepping for this app, I thought the bushfires were last year. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of insane. We, but we are actually, no, we are in year two of the pandemic. The uh, catastrophic bushfires were actually uh, the summer of 2019-20. Uh, uh, then COVID hit. We had the whole of uh, 2020, which was COVID-dominated. 
2021 hasn't been much much different, right? So let's start uh, in February. So uh, it was lovely for me actually prepping. I went back through Peter's columns because he writes a column for us uh, each fortnight with the data and it just actually put the story to, of the year together beautifully. But back then, February, right? So we had uh, in, in that uh, poll we had the 2PP+, plus, which we're going to come back to at the end of this session, guys. So listen up. We're going to do a refresher on 2PP+, plus at the end. But what I mean by that is the voting intention data. It it basically showed that uh, people were still comfortable with the, the government's response to the pandemic, but uh, Labor was still in the contest, which was sort of surprised us both, if we're being honest, really, right? Yeah, I think 2020 was this fascinating year where there was a decoupling of government performance from voting intention. I think on one level it was because the election was so far down the track, Um, but it was very much also seen as government rather than an individual leader, although clearly Morrison's approvals um, reflected a split across partisan lines thought he was doing a good job. So we got to the end of last year and um, the government would have felt they were in pretty good shape. The economy was reopening. There were a couple of lockdowns over the summer. But, you know, in February, we had 70% of voters saying the government was doing a good job in managing the pandemic, which was like their first and only test really at that time. But yet Labor was still like in the game in voting intention, looking down the track. So we're this interesting world where anything could have happened, Anything could have happened, yeah. And remember that 70% number because without foreshadowing too much, let's just say the story changed. Anyway. Should we also say early on that if listeners want to play at home, um, we've got a whiz-bang new website called essentialreport.com.au and you can actually go in and watch these charts while you're listening. What a great way to spend your point time. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I reinforce that actually. If you've got a minute uh, and you can just hit pause... pause. (laughs) pause, you know, take out your earbuds for a minute, fire up your computer or your laptop or your tablet or whatever you've got, have a look at the website because Pete's looking at some of the graphs as we go, basically, to inform our conversation. So, yes, you can definitely do that. Okay, so that was February. And as you say, back then we spent a lot of time talking about that, that decoupling between high support for the government's approach to the pandemic, but yet... Labor was still in the contest, which was unusual because most other oppositions around the country had tapped the mat by then. Mm. You know, the, the premiers were so dominant that that's a that's a cul-de-sac we won't get into. But anyway, so we roll from February to March. And the big thing that happens in March, of course, is uh, Australia is introduced to Brittany Higgins, <laughs> the former Liberal staffer who made an allegation of uh, sexual assault in a ministerial office in Canberra, and that was a huge news event. And if we look at the data, almost immediately afterwards, we see a couple of things. We see that there was a seven-point drop in voter approval of Scott Morrison's pandemic response, seven points, right, on the pandemic response. He also took a hit on attributes as well. Over three polls, he went from 65% approval in February 21 to 54% mm-hmm. in April. But the interesting, so it was a 10-point drop, but he remained stable amongst blokes. And it was the women vote. One in five women changed their view exactly. of the job the Prime Minister was doing. And look, 
if we remember back, he was clearly floundering out of his depth, not quite sure whether he should lead or just talk to Jen and the kids or, or where it should go. Manage it away. But it was interesting also the stability of the men's and even within the men's it was even scarier in that there was a cohort where the approval went, went up, up, which oh, no. was oh. younger rural men. Yes. So, Remember when we saw that? It was just kind of like, oh, what? oh my God. Like, you know, just I'm, I'm having I'm having this reaction outside the realm of partisan politics. It's just I'm just saying as a person, it's kind of like, oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, anyway, yes, as Pete says, he took a hit but women were the principal actors in the, taking the hit and men more or less stayed, although there was, there was sort of a wobble at one point along there with men as well, nothing precipitous, nothing mm. like the women, but there was a wobble. But mm. then we had this uh, rebound in approval among certain cohorts uh, of blokes. But it's interesting, isn't it, that he took the hit sort of not only just sort of in the more amorphous territory of do you think he's okay or not, but also on the pandemic response. Indeed. Um, so there was almost a sense that at least with cohorts, he'd lost that authority that had been remarkably resilient through 2020. Um, what was also interesting at that time was the drop in support, particularly amongst women, weren't tied to particular voting intention, like you know, a large proportion, obviously, of progressive voters don't approve of a conservative no, politician exactly. as of yeah, principle. Of course. So that 20% drop amongst women voters was also concentrated on those that would normally vote on that yes. side of politics. So there were flashing lights, Yes, right? well, and, and that brings me so beautifully, it's almost like we semi-planned this, to the phenomenon of Liberal women, which uh, if you sort of want to look back for Pete's greatest hits over uh, the year in terms of the columns, uh, I do think that was your best column of the year where if you don't remember it, you can track it down on the website uh, very easily. But basically Pete mused about this idea that we've sort of had in Australian politics for a long time, really, since the Howard era. It's sort of like... Uh, of the Liberal woman who yes, might change, who might her, change vote. her vote. And yep. The in initial version of that had the image of the siren calling um, <laughs> us to the shore, and I cut that out on advice from some very um, shrewd readers at the time who said that's not the time or the place. But the idea that progressives have always thought there is this group of female voters who we can get. And originally I think it was around um, refugees yes. and humanitarian no, well, issues. Well, well, these women yeah. used to be referred to as doctor's wives. Doctor's wives, of course. Right? It was the and, sort of, yes. And then it went into climate change and there was a lot of effort um, in the last political cycle to bring these women who might vote yes. progressive at some stage across. Um, my argument in that, that column was I think sometimes we make the mistake that we think of these voters as women first and Liberal voters second, whereas a Liberal voter by definition sees a smaller role for government and we had to actually probably go a bit closer into thinking about the world from their perspective. Yes. Although I think what's been really interesting, particularly with a particular group of those voters, the doctor's wives, the advent of the um, community independence I think is going to be really yes. interesting because I think there's always been a barrier of thinking that they'll go from blue to green, mm. whereas Labor is tribally not where they're going to go. And I think there's almost this safe harbour being created by the movement of community independence that could well play into this next political cycle. No, exactly, and that's why it was, it was that's why it was an important piece mm. because it sort of surfaced, you know, a whole debate, a sotto voce debate that goes on amongst backrooms and strategists 
because women with children are the sort of holy grail of of all political parties. They're the hardest voters to communicate with because they're busy, they're not necessarily watching the news every night. Everyone wants those people, right? Like swinging, I'm not talking about doctor's wives, it is a dreadful, that is a dreadful label. But anyway, I'm not talking about that because they are obviously engaged uh, people who have picked a team. I'm just saying women generally, political parties are very fixated on because women can decide the outcome of elections and they're, and they're not always listening closely and they're hard to communicate with. But in terms of that particular cohort, yes, it's, as Pete says, like the sort of building story throughout the year was, was there a prospect of a safe harbour for Liberal women who had looked at the Prime Minister and uh, and the government and thought, ugh, really, I just don't think that this fellow and the sort of tone and temper of the party represents, mm. you know, the, represents us on a range of issues. So anyway, that's going to be watch this space, isn't it? But I think I think you're pessimistic though, aren't you, about whether or not those, whether or not they ever peel off? Look, I, history says that not. ultimately mm. they don't. That's where I think there may be this different dynamic this time. Obviously that's not... Well, there are, there are a large number of seats where these um, community independents are going to be active, so I think it is really interesting to look there. I, I wouldn't assume that if they do get into power that their votes would put a Labor government in either. No. Like I think there's a real assumption as we watch all this of um, the intervention on climate by mm. basically progressive philanthropists that the votes automatically see a progressive government. It yeah. may well be that they form a base that forced the Libs and the coalition to come up with something approaching a policy for the 21st no, century no. on climate. No, so no, let's, no, exactly. yeah. you know, so I don't, I hate trying to predict the future, but you, you you look at what's happened in the past. I guess the other thing I'd say is if you look at what happened in the past, Morrison almost ran a one-man yes. race last time. Yeah. Um, his approval at the end of the year is down under 50% for the first time since the bushfires. Um, I think he's got his work cut out, but... He did it last time and I think there's still a sense of trauma in a lot of us that one person very good at the images and the messages could override an entire movement. Mm. I think that said a bit about us, but I also think it does say that he's quite a formidable campaigner. Oh, he's an absolutely formidable campaigner. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, so there are these factors. It's sort of like, um, you know, we think about the age we live in as being an age where people's uh, partisan loyalties have diminished, you know, because there's a rise of third-party you know, kind of uh, micro parties, independence, all of that sort of stuff. So it, it is really interesting to think about, you know, how how rusted on, you know, any cohort of voters mm. is with their particular tribe. And as you say, then you've got to overlay the dynamic of a campaign with a formidable campaigner who understands how to market and message and, you know, whose subspecialty is finding the goat track to... Victory. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's touch down in April now. Oh, so goodness, we're still in April. I'm we're in sorry. April. Yes. No, no, no. Back we're in April, April because we we need to talk about the other major challenge that the government was facing at that point in time, apart from the whole aftermath of Brittany Higgins and, and the cultural issues that surfaced during that time, the other major problem the government had was the vaccination rollout. 
By April, if we look at our numbers, voters were starting to twig that there was a problem, that we were, in fact, not at the front of the queue. We were a considerable distance away from the front of the queue. So what what was going on around then? you know, this was the first time, I think, in the story of the pandemic where there was actually a political contest. So the Prime Minister over-egged um, his triumphalism about a vaccine rollout, which is obviously his path to the election that would have been held a couple of months ago and we would have been, you know, getting ready for another term of yes. coalition government. But they um, they got behind. Then the, um, the health orders came through on AstraZeneca and they saw an opportunity to slow things down. That created panic. That slowed down vaccine rollout. Then we had the leakages from the quarantine. Um, and then all of a sudden we're back in lockdown. So we go from 70% approval of the federal government response to COVID in March and by August we're down at 38. So mm. it's effectively cut in half. And But also what happened was Labor early got a strong set of messages. Remember, he only had two jobs, mm. um, vaccine rollout, quarantine, and it, it it almost became a mantra, but it was also because the lived experience was there, it didn't seem to be, um, you know, um, gratuitous negative yeah. campaigning. Yeah. It was actually what people yeah, were thinking. Were so it worked. Yeah. yeah. And so you did see this massive drop in in confidence at the same time, the states that were actually in lockdown mm. and the states that were avoiding Yes. Lockdown. The um the regard for state governments remained remarkably yes. durable. So you had this whereas it was it kind of been yay team government in twenty twenty, this mm. gap started opening up. Mm. And then the other thing you started doing is flaying at the states, not realizing that the gap was opening to twenty points in yes. terms of approval between the two. Yeah, yeah. It was quite it was it was sort of fascinating that phenomenon. If you did look at the data, there was like it's more than an air gap. It's like I don't know what I don't know what you describe that gap as, because again, one step back from the data and just talking to MPs and you know sort of hearing what people say was sort of you know what's happened during COVID. Obviously, it's reminded people about states. The states are well and truly back in people's minds. The premiers have been the ones with the power. And yes, the approval of the premiers, well, particularly in the West, Queensland, Tassie, you know, that's all that we don't do, Tassie, do we? But it's like everyone held up. But even in the two lockdown states, New South Wales and Victoria. above 50%. Um, And I think the dynamic that shifted is traditionally there's a bit of a balancing out, particularly in Queensland and WA, where you see we'll have state Labor governments, we want the opposite side in Canberra. Yes, exactly. At this point, particularly in WA, the question that voters ask when we're doing our work with them is, who's going to support Mark McGowan yes. better? And, like, when you've been a guy that's been taking to him with a 4B2, it's not a great value proposition to be responding no, to, right? No, no, no. It was sort of amazing because you sort of, uh, you know, they, they set up this whole... I think, look, if we if we sort of unpick it, it's not like, um, you know, Scott Morrison, who is the most data-driven Prime Minister we've ever seen, suddenly just immediately just lost his mind. I think what was starting to happen in the winter of discontent that we're describing was they started developing problems with their base. Mm. The base was annoyed by the long lockdowns. Uh, disconcerted by, uh, you know, big government in people's faces with public health orders, 
You know, I'm talking about their absolute mm. rusted ons, right? I mean, the bulk of Australia is totally on board like with we, like we love vaccines. No, no, yeah. no. We and we would we have been astonished throughout yeah. the pandemic about what people were up for. Remember when like 80 percent of people wanted ankle bracelets or something? I mean, it's like, <laughs> oh my god, you know, it's like we, you and I have had some moments, right? But I just mean their their absolute rusted on core base. I think the prime minister in the middle of the year started to detect yeah. problems. And that was when Palmer started getting exactly. busy as well and we saw, like, an, it's small numbers, but we saw a doubling of UAP in that sort of third quarter and anyone that's got access to an Instagram account or anything will know it's just all yellow at the moment. And while in 2019 the effect of Palmer was ultimately to run a negative campaign against Shorten, this time it was really a freedom campaign against all yeah, sides of post. And I, I don't discount the amount that that was feeding into the fermenting of what we've seen now on the streets, like yeah. the, this use of the technological yes. um, political infrastructure by Palmer. He's just got, and you, you see the numbers coming in the reporting of the amount that the parties are putting into these social media spends, and like Labor and the even the coalition, they're putting in like seven, eight thousand, and yeah. then there's six yes, figures exactly. from yes, eleven billion yeah. UAP. Yeah, and yeah, so they, and so the big question for me is when push comes to shove last time. That independent campaign became an anti-Labor campaign. Does that happen again this time or does it poison the water for the incumbent government? If they, you know, the other big change last election, which I think a lot of us missed in the um, 2016 when Labor did pretty well, One Nation um, preferenced against sitting MPs. Yes. In 2019, they preferenced against Labor. Mm. So where do these outliers go when they think both parties have let them down? Do they preference against the sitting MPs, which by logic would help the opposition yes or do they then always or go back to type it is a really significant question yeah uh, and one we don't have an answer to yet because interestingly uh the UAP in the last federal campaign as Pete says were basically like a super PAC for the re-election of a coalition government but but they did their messaging sharpened as we reached the decision point, like that final two weeks, all of the partners was Bill Shorten, you know, negative messages about Bill Shorten. Uh, So far, we, as you say, we've been in the pox on all your houses territory Mm. by these, some of these players. So It's going to be a pretty hard pivot to then go incumbent, isn't it? Like I wouldn't put it past them, but. I wouldn't put it past them. But it's sort of, but anyway, it's an unknown and what we can see by the government's behaviour behaviour because we've had this strange phenomenon on and off in periods since the winter of Morrison appearing to position himself against his own record, Mm. right? Yeah. We've had this strange, like, does not compute, right? But in a broader sense as well, like, the the big question I had at the start of the year was would the government learn from their success or would they revert to type, right? And they... The success last year was to put, you know, double the amount of support for people that were out of work. They got rid of that. Yeah. It was um, to work collaboratively with the states. They got rid of that. Yeah. It was to come up with unifying messages. They got rid of that. So mm. they've kind of almost frittered away what seemed to have been a really successful politically yeah, model well, of government well, yeah, it, through well, almost willful um, design. And it just, it, it blows my mind sometimes. No, I know. And it's it really is odd because it's sort of like what, you know, if we think about Morrison's transition from the disaster of the bushfires into COVID and what he learned, it was a period in his prime ministership where he, I think, genuinely did attempt what we would call big tent leadership, mm. right? 
build a big coalition in the centre. Share you know? power, share responsibility. Exactly, all of that, right? And it was the first time we'd seen him do it and it was sort of uh, and it was interesting because it's, it's not his, dis, his natural disposition in the sense this guy is always, he's thinking like a campaign director, so it's kind of like I only need 50 plus one, right? I don't need to do big tent. I just have to know I'll win, mm. right? But he, he did that. He sort of established a mojo around that. But then I, don't, I, I honestly don't know whether, the, whether it was starting to panic about the base peeling off, where it was starting to worry whether or not Clive Palmer would show up for them or show up as a foe. It, look, it's probably a combination of these things, but it has been a really fascinating dynamic in the back half of the year mm. to watch Morrison, because if you look at the data, which is the point mm. of this conversation, the period in which he was most approved of, most, uh, you know, the strategy was approved of was during his big tent phase. And anyway, as you say, he's kind One of, of the moved ways off that. I observe it is that, I think a lot of this second half of the year, he has been trying to build the hill to fight the election yes, on. Yes, definitely. Yep. One of the deft, and it, I know it, it, it um, frustrates a lot of progressives, but a lot of the deft work that Labor has done in opposition has been what they haven't yes. announced and they yeah. haven't given him a climate hill to yes. fight on and they haven't given him a tax hill to fight on. And that may have implications in the way Labor governs, but the bigger implication is if Labor doesn't govern, that's all hypothetical mm. anyway. So mm. um, I think at some point he was trying to make the future and opening up Australia his hill to die on. Mm. And so he kept trying to find a purchase point, but yes. each time he did it, the fact was 90% of Australians had got vaccinated, so he was talking to such a small group that mm. you don't actually have you, – you need to fight a fight when you've got – a, a solid base yes, to start when from. when you've got a it's battalion the, behind You've got to you. find a path yeah. to 50% plus one in the key seats you need to win on. Yeah. And yeah. I think they're still looking for it. Um, I'm sure they're trawling through every statement Albo's ever made yeah. since he was a student activist and they're trying on the religious freedoms and they were having a I, – I I'm not quite sure the strategy on trolling because I don't know how they, 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 they get a contest around that. So I still think a lot of what we're seeing now is, is trying to find the issue that proves it's too big a risk to change horses yes. because yes. I don't think where Morrison is with those numbers on approval now that he can just run – I've been a great leader, just give me another term. Like, yeah, I just don't think that's going to work. It's more fraud. And, again, almost like we planned this, Pete, you've provided the perfect segue. You know, we'll just linger here for a bit. Anthony Albanese, as you've no. mentioned, you have detailed the small target strategy and how Morrison has actually found that difficult. I think, you know, people in the back half of the year will have seen that, that the Prime Minister has found that difficult because he's a combatant that needs a counterpoint and he hasn't had one on, on a few key issues. So what is the data, mm. just in very helicopter terms, we won't be so exhaustive yeah. uh, with the opposition leader, given that we're very close to an election now, how's he travelling? So he's in net positives, which opposition leaders normally aren't, and I don't think there's been an election in the last decade where opposition leaders have been in net positives. Um, Bill never was. Um, Abbott wasn't, even when he won yes. in 2013. Um, at this stage, he's at 40 approval, about 35% disapproval, still 25% don't know. Those in the Beltway think yeah. Albanese is someone that's been in our life forever. Yes, there exactly. is a huge cohort that go, who? Yes. Um, so... I think that by design and also by um, circumstance, he has not been a high-profile leader. First, 
particularly during the first phase of the pandemic where it was just get out of the way, like that was the only job of an opposition leader. This year he's been more effective in building the negative and removing the... Well, the, 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 the bad hills, the, the bad and hills. now and now yeah. the job is well, how do you hills. how do you put mm. a proposition? If you say that incumbency's out, probably character for Morrison's out, so it becomes what's the future look like for Australia? And normally that is running on the economy, right? Yes. So Labor's opportunity is to come up with an economic plan that means something to people. I've given you my theory many times. Liberals <laughs> win when um, who's better at managing the economy is yep. the question in a. Um, theoretical sense, when you put people in the equation, you can come up with an economic narrative that means something. Labor's got a shot. Last time they won 2007, the economy became about workers' rights. I think the opportunity for Labor is to come up with this, an economic story that's about people. They've got the building blocks there. They've got early learning and TAFE in terms of building people into the labour market. Mm -hmm. They've got job security in terms of what a job's like. And I think they're building a proposition on more Australian industry, which is really popular. So you end up with this kind of a better economy for working people. The um, coalition's just got their natural brand advantage, except this time around, yes. as we polled last Interestingly. week, their line ball. I've never yeah. seen this. On the question, who's better at managing the economy? I think it's 36-36. It's normally a 15% lead mm. for the coalition. That signals that that natural advantage isn't there. Mm. Again, doesn't mean what's going to happen next, but it means that that normal sense that as you come round the home turn, um, that the coalition's three or four um, lengths ahead, ahead. Mm. because of economic management, they're, they're, they're neck and neck. Yeah, um, yeah. Do we believe those numbers? Which ones? The economic. The, 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 I asked Jim Chalmers last week, I had him in the studio, I said, do you believe that? Because it's sort of, it's so counterintuitive. It's so against the, well, see, we've got two questions in our poll. We've got the who do you trust on on uh, the economy and we've got who do you trust to manage the interests. Of ordinary working Australians. Of ordinary, yes, exactly. Yeah. And, who do you, yes. and, and Labor's ahead Labor's about. always ahead on the second, yeah. yes, but it's the first where, well, where Labor hasn't been ahead. Are you ahead. saying do I believe my poll? I, like I, we've just done a whole half hour talking about my polling and now you're saying, do I believe it? <laughs> Polls are an abstraction. They they give you a sample and your job is to make sense out of it. I've never seen a number like that. Maybe it's a rogue, except that every other answer was totally predictable in the poll. Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. says to me that, and, and all of this on. is call and response. Mm. So if they're just going out saying economy, 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 which is kind of like yeah. one of his things he's been yeah, iterating. Yeah, absolutely. It's not, it's not a given. No, 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 no. Anyway, I was being cheeky. Um, uh, let's, because, uh, you know, it, it's you and me and, of course, uh, we, we, uh, we are chatting away amiably and could go for several hours. But <laughs> anyway, uh, let's just, before we get into possible scenarios next year, let's just, uh, for our uh, regular readers of the poll, let's just do a quick refresher on 2PP+, because... Guys, it's an election year next year. Pete and I have been very keen to dial down the horse race and we will continue to do that. Uh, and if you've listened to us in the past, we've done a whole podcast on uh, why we why we are doing that. And so we're not proposing to radically change course, but obviously there will be more interest next year in the voting intention figures. So we need to explain 2PP plus again, because if you read polls regularly, you'll, you'll be used to looking for the primary votes and then you'll be looking for the two-party preferred vote. You know, that's common polling practice. But we are doing it slightly differently. Yeah. So traditionally they all add up to 100, but there's a trick in there that 
um, isn't really made clear, which is people that are undecided are taken out. Yes. Um, I think one of our insights after the last election was being so clear that Labor was ahead for so long that we'd actually disenfranchised the disengaged who, when they did engage, turned heavily yes. um, to that top line SCOMO messaging of the bill you can't afford. I, yeah. I think that's actually a, a reasonably defendable thesis. So how do we ensure that we don't repeat those mistakes, we keep the disengaged in. Yes. And we say, mm. even a week out, there'll be between 12 and 7% that say, I don't know, They their vote is just as important, if not more important, mm. than the people that are locked in to the Greens or Labor or wherever they are. So by keeping them in, it keeps the sense that the contest is live. Yes. Um, but it's interesting. I was watching the way that they reported um, the US presidentials last mm-hmm. year, and they've started doing the same thing over mm-hmm. there. I'm not saying it's we're the market leader, but I think there's a, of course there's we're a growing, the market leader. What do you but, mean? But there, there is a growing sense that polls were being misused yes. to almost predict what the future is going to hold. All you can do is say at this moment in time, and what that does is, as we get close to the election, if there is that sort of seven percent in the middle, they become a focus of curiosity rather than pulled out of the equation and probably a bit of greater scrutiny about the way we're trying, the various parties try to pitch at those disengaged and hopefully a bit more accountability as well, particularly in the context of spreads of disinformation and misinformation. So I think it actually sets out a really neat challenge as well as probably a bit of a fail-safe for us falling into the the trap of saying they're ahead or they're behind yes. because it's just not a good way of looking no, at no, the no. future. No, no, no. And, yeah, it's not right and and it's not, you know, much noise. This is as much my issue uh, and people who report polls issue as the data itself and this is a discipline on me rather than saying that polls point to Scott Morrison winning or Anthony Albanese winning, the discipline is by by disaggregating those numbers and making them clear to you, what we're saying is, look, at the moment, Labor's ahead or Morrison's ahead. Uh, well, but there's, not even ahead, but have more support have more than support. the other side. Yes. But, and then, yeah. but there's, you know, 8%, 15%, however many yeah. it ends up being, uh, who are undecided. And the point of putting them in there, I mean, Pete's explained it beautifully, but is that you know, the people who are undecided actually determine election outcomes in this country. They are the people who determine the outcome. We got nothing to do with it, listeners. We're (laughs) irrelevant. We just watch from the cheap seats. Exactly. We could not be more irrelevant, right? It's that group who are undecided and often undecided right up until the minute they walk into the polling booth. They are the people who determine election outcomes. So that's why we're reporting it in this way. So I'm just reminding you about this so that when we go into the new year, you don't have to clutch your head in horror and think, oh, my God, what is this thing again, you know? The, the one thing we might ease off, we've also only been putting them out every three months in the rearview mirror. Yes. I think once the election starts, yeah, we might... Yeah, we're going to have to revert. We yes. might go Even. back to the bad behaviours, but just because... Oh, God, I know. It's an election. I know. And, and you know, and much and all, as we have worked really hard, you and I, to dial down the horse race genuinely... There, next there year, there's a horse race. <laughs> Giddy <laughs> up, listeners. Giddy up, exactly. <laughs> anyway, again, God, it's like you're a Segway machine today, <laughs> right? Okay, so now we're at next year and uh, without uh, predictions are stupid and we're not in that business, but what are your potential scenarios, do you think, for next year in terms of obviously there's a Coalition one and there's a Labor one? Yeah, I think Labor comes up with a proposition that um, does not give 
too much ammunition to create a sense of risk, but also builds a sense of hope that we can build back a better, stronger economy, and they really own that. Um, and critically, that the noise around progressive politics recognises that the the main game is changing government rather than campaigning at Labor in opposition, which I think we really did last time around until it got so much noise that it reinforced the higher tax narrative because everyone was a winner. Um, for the coalition, the, I, I still think that there's a sense that this guy is a one-man campaigning machine. If he can harness the infrastructure of conservative um, stability, which is lots of donors, bringing Clive back into the tent, keeping our friends at News Limited, living the dream, using the power of incumbency, filling the field with muck so that the real stories don't get through. We can't take anything for granted and ultimately it becomes a seat-by-seat contest. There's probably three seats in WA that Labor's looking at. There's three seats in Tassie they thought they would have won last time that they lost. There's a bunch of noise in Queensland, although the margins are a lot larger now after the bad time. New South Wales is weird. I'm still getting a handle on it. Mm. So there's going to be this big national conversation. There'll be a wave of counter-narratives and then there'll be seat-by-seat. If people want to change government, the one thing they do is get active in their local area. And I, and I, I guess the other um, wild card are these community independents that could be all over the place and forcing the Libs to fight both a right flank and a left flank. Yeah. So imagine being up against Clive Palmer and Zoe Daniel and yeah. trying to sort no, of no, certify no. both. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's yeah. really interesting. It's interesting. So, yeah, yeah um, it is interesting. My only... Um, my only prediction is that something will happen that blows our mind and um, then it will all seem totally understandable in the rearview yes, mirror. The rearview mirror is so clear. I know. The problem is the windscreen. It is. Always we stare at that windscreen, <laughs> just not real sure. Full of all those squashed <laughs> insects and smears. And, A couple uh, of chips. Anyway, look, thank you, Pete. That was that was uh, exactly what we needed really to round out this week. Thank you to you guys for listening. We really do appreciate it. Thank you all for, you know, keeping me company throughout uh, the parliamentary year. The the pod isn't finishing. I reckon I've got a few episodes left in me, but the parliamentary year is finishing. So as always, we're grateful when you listen and you engage and all of that sort of stuff. Thank you to Melanie Tate, who's uh, executive producer of this show while Miles Martignoni is taking a short break. And thank you to Karishma Luthria, who cuts it for us. We will be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.